Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. I think if you look closely at the records of many, most of the black politicians and activists during that period, including Marion Barry, they weren't just saying get tough. They were also demanding investment in our schools. They were demanding economic investment. They were demanding jobs, job training, the rebuilding of communities that had been devastated by the disappearance of work due to deindustrialization and globalization. These folks weren't saying, just come in and lock everybody up and then give us police and jails and nothing else. No. They were at that moment in time, in that historical moment in time, there was a real crisis, just like there's a real crisis right now, for example, in Chicago, right? And there's probably many people in Chicago who are living in neighborhoods that are plagued by violent crime that might well say, we need more police, we need to get some of these folks off the street, right? But that's not all they want. Right. That's not all they want. They also want their kids to have a future. They want good schools. They want investment to repair the harm that's been done. They want health 
care. They want drug treatment on demand for those who are suffering with drug addiction. And what we've seen in you know, recent months and in the past couple of years is that now that drug use has become or perceived as a white problem, yes. There's this wave of compassion and concern. No one's calling for a war. No one's calling for mandatory minimum sentences for, you know, heroin addicts and for people who are committing these kinds of offenses. The kinds of horrible, grotesque caricatures that were done of, you know, people who are struggling with crack addiction. Um, we don't see that in the media around, you know, the many, many white folks who are strung out on heroin and desperately need support. And yet, you know, we have suddenly, you know, space in our hearts um, for concern and for compassion and for treatment and alternative approaches. You don't hear much thumping and calls for war. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with the race and ethnicity um, of those who are suffering at the time. And in the, you know, early 1990s, um, urban black communities were suffering from economic collapse. A literal depression was affecting those communities. Um, you know, the unemployment rate had quadrupled in many urban areas. Um, you know, neighborhoods that were solidly working class, you know, were suddenly turning into ghettos um, practically overnight. And, you know, at that moment, our nation had a choice. Stay tuned. Our Common Ground, Alternative Activist Empowerment Talk Radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, and Janice we, Graham. We thank you so much for joining us here at Our Common Ground this Saturday, the first Saturday of April 2016, and we hope that you are well, and tonight here at Our Common Ground, it's Open Mic Saturday night, and we invite you to call in with things that are on your mind, things that you have thought about, uh, haven't had a chance to really chew it up and digest it. That's what our Open Mic Saturday night is all about. Before we get started, uh, we do want to welcome you once again to spring 2016 and give you an idea tonight uh, about a theme. It's something that I've been thinking about in terms of of how we look at the issues in front of us, and that is having some kind of awareness and understanding of what timeline means. I think many of you think that timeline has to do with how you lay out history, but it also has to do with how you lay out issues. Timelines are often used in in, in my profession in in doing organizational planning and um, analysis to look at how something came to be. And one of the things I want to ask you to do in, in thinking about this notion, this concept of timeline is to hold on to it as we go and attempt to look at charter schools in our communities and how the charter school and profiteering in education 
has come to be. But timelines can be is able to really amplify cause and effect. What made something happen and when it happened, what was the end result? And I don't think we give enough thought uh, in detail to the issues that we face. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to be looking at charter schools. We're going to be looking at a timeline. How did it happen? What what prompted it? What ignited it? What made it successful? And what makes us claim it and support it? And what are the outcomes? Cause and effect. The other thing I would like for us, this is all my agenda. For I always have an agenda um, since it's my program. I always bring an agenda to open mic Saturday night. The second agenda item that I want to take a look at is, is it time for us to examine in real time the notion of a third electoral po- uh, po- political party? Is it time for us to put our politics? We talked about this in um, a couple of months ago when we were talking about bakerizing, putting our political ideology, our political agenda, our political problems in perspective and making decisions about whether or not we're getting the right outcome. And if we're not getting the right outcome, what are we going to do about it? It is clear that the Republican Party is not going to be a political party that is going to support the the political aspirations and the political needs of black people in this country, no matter how many black people you know that support Donald Trump. It is also clear that the Democratic National Committee and the Democratic Party has not advanced progress to the point where it can, in reality and in authenticity, address the issues. They just want to be our friends, and they want us to be their friends. And there is a lot of talk going around, and I really want – To hear from you out there, there's a lot of talk going around that it is the black vote that is going to be the decider in the 2016 presidential election. Well, we were the decider in 2008 and 2012. And I want to know in terms of using a timeline to analyze cause and effect, what caused us to support Barack Obama for two candidacies, and what was the effect? Oh yeah, we got some. You know, we got we got a little. Um, what what my mother, my southern mother would say, we got a pinch of this and a pinch of that. But we really had no significant presence in the political process of the Democratic president, Barack Obama, or his White House. There were black faces in high places, but what was the 
affect the result, the outcome. So we want to talk about that tonight. And then I have a number of features that I would like to present to you. Uh, Specifically in the second hour, we're going to be looking at who I think is one of the most successful activists in the country, and that is Jamala Rogers of St. Louis. And we're going to be looking at what she has to say about activism, what she has to say about whether black lives matter, and if it does not matter to them or to us, what we must be doing about it, and that will be in the second hour. Our number is 347-838-9852. I do a lot of talking about how we connect Uh, to our spiritual selves, to our philosophical selves, and to the reality of our lives, where we work, where we live, where we send our children to school. And I think that there are very few people who live in in, in our communities, whether they see themselves as disenfranchised, whether they see themselves as part of an active uh, economy, whether or not they see themselves as authentic citizens subject to the benefits and the privileges of their citizenship. We all, more than not, much more than not, want to have success, do those things that are necessary as responsible parents or surrogate parents for the children in our community. If you don't believe that, you can call me and and, and talk to me about it. The number is 347-838-9852. And for those of you who are on various kinds of Android and Apple devices, if you'd like to join our in our chat room as we talk about these things and offer some discussion, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash, that's to the right, OCG, and uh, visit us here as we progress through this live broadcast. Um, <clears throat> so the, the, the first thing on my agenda is about these, charter schools. The propaganda is and the reality is very different. But if we think about it in terms of laying out charter schools in this country on the timeline, the effect and the the cause and the effect and looking at the outcome. Uh, I don't know if whether you are one of our regular listeners or not, if you know that each week for this broadcast, we provide reference materials on all of our topics. Um, And you can go to our Facebook page on the event page and find all of the information that you need that that we offer 
around these topics. Um, and one of the things that I went to is back in January of 2015, uh, Alternet ran a piece by Christopher Bonanzia. Uh, and the title was The Racist History of the Charter School Movement. And the header on uh, the piece online was touted as the cure for what ails uh, public education. Charter schools have historical roots that are rarely discussed. And he admits in this piece that parents, especially black parents, find it easy to be attracted to charter schools because many of the schools, the traditional public schools for which their children attend, are failing them. Now, for those of you who do not understand, charter schools are public schools. They are a form of school-for-profit inside the public school structure. It is the idea of offering public education dollars to private companies. And it really has its roots, historical roots, in white resistance to school desegregation, especially after Brown versus Board of Education 1954. Two years before a federal court set a final desegregation deadline, in the fall of 1959, a local newspaper publisher, J. Barry Wall, shared white county leaders' strategy of resistance with a congressman, Watson Abbott, and he wrote, we are working on a scheme in which we will abandon schools, sell the buildings to our corporations, reopen excuse me, as privately operated schools with tuition grants from Virginia and Prince County as the basic financial program, close quotes. Then he wrote, those wishing to go to integrated schools can take their tuition grants and operate their own schools and to hell with them. Um. <clears throat> Another attorney in Virginia advised high-ranking Virginia politicians on school strategies around the desegregation rulings. Negroes could be let in, meaning to white schools, and then chased out by setting high academic standards they could not maintain, by hazing if necessary, by economic pressures in some cases, etc., This should leave few Negroes in the white schools. The federal courts can easily force Negroes into our white schools, but they can't possibly administer them and listen to the merits of thousands of belly aches. These nefarious motives may seem a far cry from the desire of many charter school operators to reinvent public education for students whom traditional public schools have failed. The, the, the assumption is for the pro-charter side is that market competition in education will be like that 
for toothpaste, providing an array of appealing options. I don't know what your experience is or what you understand about charter school operators, but charter school operators like health insurance insurers who exclude potentially costly applicants have developed methods to screen out applicants who are likely to to depress overall test scores because test scores are what charter schools use to get and increase their funding. And these operators have some clear motives to avoid students who would require special services like language, um, equivalency, special needs children, and those who are unlikely to produce the high achievement. Okay, let's go back to our discussion for a minute of the notion of a timeline. We're looking, what I've just talked about, we're looking at the cause, and now we're looking at the effect. The effect being that most charter schools are going to draw off children who are going to perform well in school no matter what school they're in. They are going to siphon off gifted students. They're going to siphon off parents who are engaged in the educational life of their children. In the first decade of the 2000s, charter school enrollment nearly tripled. And today, um, around 2.5% of public school students are enrolled in private schools. And black students are overrepresented in charter schools. There's your outcome. So what does all this mean? It, It really has proven terribly difficult to do with successful public schools um, and and as important as applying successful techniques to other schools is an issue at the other end of the spectrum when to conclude that a charter school has failed. The other part of this equation has got to be what does it do for the public school institutions that are not charter. Cause, effect, and outcome. Our number is 347-838-9852. We're going to go to our phone, 646. You're on the air. Thank you for your call. 646. 646, you have your your hand up. 646, you had your hand up because you said you wanted to talk to us. It's Saturday night, so I suppose uh, 646 has decided to step out on us. But in the meantime, this is what we have to... Uh, deal with these charter schools they're in a market and the market is not a self-regulating mechanism 
educational history teaches us to be wary of deep and authentic desire to find the secret sauce. There is no secret sauce. There is no magic elixir that will fix our educational systems. And one of the things that I think is that we should continue to be open to new ideas. I'm, I'm not opposed to new ideas about improving school organizations, teaching and learning. But I'm ringing the bell because if we continue to ignore important historical lessons about the dangerous consequences of educational privatization, and we just talked about the outcome. The outcome is that if we continue to move on the path to privatizing public education, those who are not able to achieve in testing, those who are not able to demonstrate parent engagement, those who are not able to toe the party line, because we haven't talked about some of the, <coughs> excuse me, the the rules that students have to play by and the rules that teachers have to play by, or the competency level that some of these private school operators have applied relative to teachers. Now, you might not have uh, seen it um, this week, but the Los Angeles Times reported that Sean Puffy Daddy Combs uh, is, is going to buy, pay for, I don't know what he's going to do, a charter school in Harlem that will be run by Steve Perry, who describes himself as America's most trusted educator. Teachers in the school will not be called teachers, but illuminators. The theme of the school is it will be social justice, and students are going to be expected, according to the press release, not only to complete college, but to understand the importance of helping their communities. All sounds wonderful, sounds wonderful, sounds wonderful. And um, I am wondering why he decided to do a, buy a, whatever, however he's doing this, uh, charter school rather than adopting a school in a school district, you know, and um, we have communities after communities, Chicago, Boston, Los Angeles, where uh, parents are rallying against more charter schools for a reason. <coughs> I'm sorry. I have all of a sudden I got something in my throat. 646, did you get back to us? I want, I want to uh, share with you. Um, a little bit more about charter schools and invite you to join us in this conversation, 347-838-9852, because we have to understand that charter schools go back to the timeline analysis, cause, effect, and outcome. It's simply more neoliberalism. Remember when we were talking with uh, Dr. Lester Spitz, 
spent about his book, Knocking the Hustle, a couple of weeks back, that we talked somewhat about the privatization of uh, public schools. And the other is that even if you don't have children in of school age, you have grandchildren and nieces and nephews, but it is also your tax dollar. In Massachusetts, there is a huge movement to budget at a higher level and add more charter schools. I, I look at it as as twofold uh, in terms of cause and effect on this one. So um, I, I, I look at it as um, there are white parents who want more charter schools because they too think that somehow charter schools will insulate their children from inner city, you know, the inner city stereotype. <coughs> the other part of it is, now I haven't been coughing all day long. I don't know what this is about, but I'm going to uh, take a sip of water so I can not cough all in your ears. The other side of it, and and you all going to get real mad at me for saying this, but the other side of it is um, the not middle class, the poor than the poorer than the church mouse crowd in the black community. It gives them the illusion that they're sending their children to a private school. Y'all don't get mad at me. I'm I'm just thinking about this thing. The other part is that the true working middle black middle elite class, which means that they probably own a house, own a car, they can buy more vacations and they can buy BMWs and whatever and send their kids to what they think is a private school, but uh, they don't have to pay for it. Have you have you been have you ever been to one of these dinner parties or Thanksgiving dinner where people say, "Oh, Johnny goes to the charter school. It's supposed to be the best charter school in the country, and forty five percent of the teachers in that charter school." don't have degrees in education, never took any courses in education, and the administrators, they're the corporate types. So you've got children moving in the best school, charter school in the city, living by the same rules that we use in our prisons. Don't get mad at me. I'm just thinking. I'm thinking about this thing. I hope you're thinking about this thing. Thank you, House Music Lover, for sharing a, um, a link on uh, how the pr- 
private education industry, it is an industry, is now profiteering on our children. Let me offer this to you. Corporations are trying to profit from the educational enterprise through Alex. What is Alex? Alex is the American Legislative Exchange Council, an organization bringing together corporate interests with state legislation to privatize and defund public education to make money. ALEC is devaluing what has been the cornerstone of public education for more than 150 years. As a public education advocate, I think that's a supremely bad idea. I'm a mother with one son that graduated and one son that is currently in public schools. Education funding is one of the last huge pots of public dollars that corporations now have their eyes set on. Through ALEC Education Task Force, those corporations are able to come in and help themselves to our public tax dollars. One example that ALEC is using to bring corporations into our classrooms is with virtual schools. Virtual schools are schools that have no bricks and mortar. Teachers are someplace remote from students and they communicate by means of the computer where the child is alone in their home, typically, um, and the teacher is somewhere else and the classmates are somewhere else. I almost feel like it's a factory meal type of education, educating thousands and thousands of children. K-12 Incorporated is one example of a for-profit virtual school benefiting from ALEC's agenda. The Virtual Public Schools Act is a piece of model legislation that ALEC created with representatives from K-12. State legislators then take that bill back. They introduce the model bill nearly verbatim in their state and get it passed. K-12 is a vendor. It has a product. Those monies then get passed to K-12. The CEO of K-12 made millions last year. The mind reels <laughs> about how much that money might do for a poor inner city school. People are not aware that children now come with a price tag on their head. Virtual schools are getting the same amount of public tax dollars and they are just pocketing the extra uh, funding they get per pupil they're not spending the public dollars and teachers and teacher salaries or invest in their schools and actually improve the, the quality of instruction and learning. Virtual schools, as our research has shown, have not been performing at levels expected for them. Only 27% of the full-time virtual schools are meeting their minimum state standards. It's unheard of. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Alex has tried to privatize public education in many different ways. This is not about education. This is not about helping kids with special needs. The centerpiece of this legislation has nothing to do with empowering parents or giving children and their parents options or improving schools. Uh, this is about privatization. This is about corporate profits. The model bill mirrors the one produced 
by ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. And this is about dismantling public education. What happens is their education is in danger. The public education dollar should be spent on the child, not spent on an exorbitant salary for some corporate CEO. Corporations entering our classroom, it is really about the financial bottom line, not the edu educational bottom line. Don't let Alex put a corporate price tag on our children's foreheads. And many of our Many of our um, large cities across the country uh, are just beginning to to use our tax dollars to funnel into corporate accounts. I, I mean, I mean, I can't say it any any. Um, if if you look at particularly when I was researching this topic, I was looking at the city of Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, there is a charter chain of schools. The name of the company is Mastery Charter. It's in Philadelphia, and the CEO of Mastery is Scott Gordon, and he believes that Mastery does what mastery does and how it works out might affect no excuses charters across the nation because he eventually had to relent to some of the strict rules of no excuses. Now let me explain to you about uh, no excuses. Critics blame charter schools for the near collapse, by the way, of the Philadelphia public school and leaves unresolved or unstated whether or not mastery, which is the chain in Philadelphia, is the solutions of the problems. Um, more than 50% of the high schools, 280 freshmen show up in these schools reading below a fifth grade level, and several city special education programs are located at the school, so about uh, a third of students also have special needs ranging from cognitive disabilities to emotional disorders, and in 2011, the year before Mastery took over, the graduation rate was 58%. So these administrators started out by instituting the No Excuses Playbook, as Mastery does in all of its uh, institutions. Students began having to raise their hands in class, tucking in their shirts and racking up demerits and detentions for the smallest infractions. They had metal detectors guarding the entrance of the building. The idea was to make it seem like a more scholarly institution when the critics came around, so they removed the metal detectors. And they began to institute, and, and this is where mastery is changing because of public outcry, to make this place look less like a prison and to run it less like a prison. But the way it operates is teachers, 
drill students in note-taking strategies and the standards they have to master. Test scores rose at first, but then they stalled. The high expectations and the rigid rules weren't enough to erase the trauma that had scarred many of these children and mastery was in danger of confirming what many critics often charge about charter schools, that while many of them may do a good job of preparing kids to do well on standardized tests and get into college, their students (coughs) flounder. Excuse me about the coughing. I don't know. Um, The engineer is not catching the, the cough button as much. So... Mastery administrators, under all this pressure and criticism, introduced a new curriculum, new teaching methods, and a disciplinary system. They hired more social workers and brought in more assistance from community organizations. And my point about telling you all of that is, isn't that what schools ought to be doing? How many of you have children in charter schools, and 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 how satisfied or not satisfied are you? And the point that I had to make about siphoning off the resources, especially the financial resources, the 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 budget resources of a community into private organizations is in my mind shameless, just shameless, 347-838-9852. And I'm going to take a break and see if I can't find my way out of um, this coughing. I, I, I have no idea what's going on. I've been coughing for weeks, but I had stopped coughing, and now I'm coughing all over again. Our number is 347-838-9852 if you want to join this discussion. We think that charter schools, I think that charter schools are just another form of neoliberalism feeding into the capitalist jaws. What think you? It's painful, I think, for the black community to face, um, but it's necessary. And, um, you know, it's my hope um, that, you know, as the months and years go by, um, that we will come to see that politics as usual, where, you know, black vote is just taken for granted by the Democratic Party, and we're constantly being told, you have to vote for us because, you know, God help you if the Republicans are elected, um, that that kind of uh, emotional blackmail Hmm. um, and scaremongering, um, you know, comes to an end and that we, um, you know, force the Democratic Party to deserve our vote um, by organizing movements that truly hold the Democratic Party accountable or perhaps forming another party, Um, you know, which I think the Bernie Sanders campaign has demonstrated that there are millions of people out there um, who are hungry um, for a different kind of politics and who want their politicians to be, you know, treating, um, you know, the American voters as though they matter.
You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And I thank you for indulging me on that very short break because uh, I really had to do something about the pipes here. We're going to go to our phones. Our number is 347-838-9852. We are soliciting your comments and your thoughts about charter schools in our inner city. 314, you're on the air. Thank you for your call. Well, I'm calling from the St. Louis area. Good. Thank uh, you. Welcome. Pianchi. And I'm a strong advocate for school choice, which include good charter schools, especially for black children. You just said the key word, good charter schools. Well, the key word was school choice. All of the statistics, all of the statistics, Pianchi, is saying that charter schools across this country are failing, that students are not achieving even at the levels of students in the same school districts where the charter school exists. Well, all charter schools not all charter schools not failing. Really, the charter school law uh, in the Missouri the way it was written. I don't know about other states. It permitted a group of people, parents, to come together and form a school under a special criteria, whether it's biomedical or whether it's engineering or robotics or whatever, and that's was this content. Now, what it has evolved into with uh, these corporations like your Beacons and Edisons and Confluence and so on and so on is a whole different thing. You know, our group had to sue the State Board of Education back in uh, 99, I believe it was, when the charter law became available here in the state of Missouri. Now, what I I wanted to say... I appreciate what you had to say, Pianchi, but let me stop you and ask you a question. At the same time, the charter school laws were promulgated in, in Missouri. Why weren't parents suing the public department of education about the failures that parents were identifying in in the in the normal in the traditional public schools? Well, they did, and they came up with busing. They came up with busing, and when black parents are, are polled, and when they are surveyed, overwhelmingly they say they want school choice. And I don't know if you notice this phenomenon. I heard you mention something about blacks that put their children in private schools. That's been going on for a long time, starting off with the Council of Independent Black Institutions. No, what I said was blacks like the illusion that the charter schools are a substitute for private, are the same as private schools. Oh, well, okay, I could agree with that. But do you know that you have an, uh, an increase in the number of black children that's going to schools that's uh, pre-K, K to 12, that's $40,000 and up per semester per year? My grandson just got a scholarship for $50,000 for one year in a private school. Yeah, right. And I have a friend of mine that go to Deerfield, and some go to Horace Mann. But that's, I mean, that's what you're starting to see nowadays. Everybody's not poor. And, and people are not going to uh, sacrifice their children to these public schools uh, and with but, the dismal but, you know, results the, the that thing, you My them. point is, Pianchi, is that we are pouring, you know, for instance, if I had someone, say a landscaper, and I was putting my money into his pockets or her pockets, 
my landscaper happens to be a female, um, to care for my yard, and all my flowers, my trees, and my grass were failing, what would I do? Well, you should change. get rid of that landscaper. That's yes, you right. should change. change. <clears throat> and so and here I think we that's are. what people want to do. But but here we are. But 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 the point is, if you got my whole description of why timelines are important, why why we have to look at cause, effect, and outcome, I believe that co- the corporate educational industrial complex is simply being supported by federal and state law to feed the capitalist and to abandon public education. Now, what does that mean? It means well, that... Go ahead. You go, you, you're going to... You, the way that public education is going to come to its demise, what's needed is full choice, which includes good is, public is schools, good, good charter you? schools, good wait private minute, schools, and also vouchers. Wait a minute, are we sitting saying we accept that? Is that acceptable? Except what? Except what? Since desegregation, this country has progressed toward just what you said, abandoning free public education. Well, is we got we have schools here in the inner city where the child the a student who sits in the desk and they count it at eleven thirty in the morning. The ADA, which is the average daily attendance rate, amounts to about twenty thousand dollars a year. And you have a school over in East St. Louis, Illinois, across the river from me, a high school where the average ACT is fourteen point eight. They're not going anywhere of any concern with that type of performance. Then we well, look at your historical black colleges that's and universities. Exactly my question. That's exact, exactly my question. As as citizens, taxpayers, should we be satisfied with that? Should, no, you, you should. But here, here's the here's the here's the the effect. The effect is that the majority of black children in this country are going to not be in charter schools. They're not going to traditional public schools. Well, so the traditional public school is going to stop Jill. Is your name Jill, do? by the way? I, I want to get your name. What's your name, by the way? I didn't get it when you first came on. Jill is My it? name is Janice Graham. Oh, I'm sorry. Janice, Miss Graham, there needs to be full choice where a parent can put their child where they feel is best for them, and which includes vouchers. And okay, let me mention one other you. thing, Ms. Graham. Look at your historical black colleges and universities. You only have five that has a graduation rate above 50% in six years. And why is and that? And that's not, that's not the child's fault. It's because the children that's coming to those are not prepared for the rigors of college. Oh, that's bullshit, Pianchi. Come on. That is because black children in in HBCUs don't get the same kind of financial aid coming into those schools that they can get from traditional white universities. Ma'am, when your children come out of high school, they have to go to junior college in order to take remedials in order to catch up. 
It's not the child's fault. It's the institutions that they're coming from. And so you're willing to abandon those two poor-performing administrators and teachers. Is that what you're saying? Well, they may be poor-performing. You have a very low... They may be poor-performing, but you mentioned the Philadelphia School District. Philadelphia School District got 9,205 employees in it. Of that, about 6,200, the average salary is $70,417 a year plus another 19000 in benefits. You mean to tell me that these teachers are not getting paid well? Well, it, it, it really has to do with the expectation of public education. And you are one of the people, one of the people walking around who have very low expectations, so you send your kids to choice, not the, not the same choice that everybody else has. I got to go. Thanks for your call. Well, well I- you're gone. I mean, here is the, this is the problem, that we're willing to abandon, we're willing to make choice for our children our personal children, but not for the village. I don't usually hang up on people, but Bianca, it was, it, was, it was going downhill. It was really going downhill. So <clears throat> um, one of the things that we have got to do is we have got to figure out, I mean, it, the, the whole the whole damn word, the, the 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 word school choice came up, was conjugated after school desegregation. Everybody wanted choice. And then here we got black people hollering about they want choice. You don't got no damn choice. And there are not that many children, black children, who are going to get into private schools. And the black children who get into the good, quote-unquote, charter schools are children and coming from families who are going to achieve in despite. Charter schools are nothing but capitalism as another name. I'm going to take a break, and when we come back, <coughs> third-party politics. I, I do apologize uh, to Pianchi, you know, but you, brother, you, you got to find another way. If you're willing to accept our freedom, then you have to be willing to accept what comes with it. This is about every black man who cannot get justice. You need to represent. You need to be the voice for people who do not have a voice. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health. 
It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. You're listening to Truth. The I Declare Show. Real. Real. Raw. Raw. Right now. Tuesdays, 9 p.m. The I Declare Show. With India Declare. She brings it real, raw, and right now. The home of real, raw, right now, talk media. And indeed, as we always say, I declare it. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. I declare, Tuesdays, 9 p.m., Blog Talk Radio, the I Declare Show. No dickety, no doubt. the story um, of American democracy since its founding, how the privileged few um, have used race as a way of driving a wedge um, between poor and working people uh, in order to advance their own interests. Um, it certainly was the case with slavery. It was certainly the case um, with Jim Crow. Jim Crow emerged in large part in response to a multiracial populist movement for economic justice and those who were in favor of racial hierarchy and wanted to continue to exploit <laughs> the lower classes um, found that they could defeat this populist movement um, by disenfranchising African Americans and persuading poor and working class whites that um, they ought to, you know, preserve their racial supremacy right. uh, in our political system and abandon their black allies. And, you know, after uh, the civil rights movement, we saw similar dynamics emerging again with the backlash against the civil rights movement, creating a political environment where, once again, um, conservatives and, you know, former uh, segregationists were able to use kind of law and order, get tough on them rhetoric uh, in order to uh, defeat kind of the growing calls for poor people's campaign and, uh, you know, the evolution of the civil rights movement into a movement for broader economic justice. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to Our Common Ground.
been uh, a president or a presidential candidate who actually treated black folks like they were fo real people mm. who could be viewed and treated as human beings, um, you know, who weren't a problem to be solved, that didn't treat African Americans as a problem to be solved, but instead would actually sit down and eat with them and sing in their church and acted like they enjoyed, recognized us as human beings. And that was, that's a huge thing. Just as the election of Barack Obama as the first black president is a huge thing for African Americans as a community, it's no small thing for um, Bill Clinton um, to reach out to African American communities in the way that he did. And I think many people remember that, especially older African Americans yeah. remember that. What they don't know, what they often don't know or don't remember, and it's actually one of the reasons why I wrote my book, The New Jim Crow, in the first place, is that many people of color don't know or fully understand um, how this system of mass incarceration was constructed, why, and the devastating consequences for our communities. And the Clintons, um, you know, had a, you know, an important role. They escalated the drug war um, and the Get Tough movement far beyond what the Republicans had done, while at the same time dismantling the federal social safety net and transferring billions of dollars away from child welfare and housing into a prison building boom unlike anything the world had ever seen. And I think it's difficult and painful for many black folks um, to face that reality. We'd rather not believe it. And, uh, you know, we, we would like to imagine that, you know, the, the politicians um, who were willing to sit with us in church and to be our friends um, actually might have done vastly more harm good. Capitalism uh, is uh, dying. Uh, it is dying of its own contradictions. And much of our job is to make sure that it doesn't kill all of us as it, it goes on the way to the cemetery. In terms of, of looking forward and what we need to do, I'm, I'm going to address that in encapsulated fashion as well. Number one, of course, we need a mass movement. But we have been without a movement for so long that people do not even have a memory of what it was 
to have a movement, to have people arguing so intensely that sometimes it came to gunfire about what direction black people were going to take. Now, of course, we're not advocating that black folks uh, turn their guns on each other, but the intensity of the argument that many of us are old enough to have experienced was, uh, experienced was a mark of a mature and healthy black polity. Uh, the kind of non-dialogue that we see going on now, it seems to be a repeat of catchphrases and talking points that folks get from CNN and MSNBC, that is no political dialogue whatsoever, and it shows a very unhealthy society. Uh, a couple of years back, I had a debate with uh, Michael Eric Dyson on Democracy Now! And Dyson kept on saying something strange. Uh, he, he said, you got to be in the game. You got to be in the game. And it became very clear that he and other black misleadership class members think that this is a game in a real sense. Uh, they look at struggle uh, not as something that masses of people join in in order to effectuate change for the, for the betterment of the entire group. They look at struggle as something that is individual. Uh, it is maneuvering by them and their buddies and whoever they can get into some kind of conspiracy for mobility with, maneuvering uh, for position, maneuvering for advantage. And in that kind of game, as they see it, we are all just pawns. And that explains their political uh, behavior. Uh, so the number two thing that we must do, uh, and I do think this leads to that, uh, is to break with the Democratic Party. Because this this is the vehicle in which they play those games. And that game, like a game of monopoly, it's dominated by the bank. And, this, and in this case, in the Democratic Party, literally by the banks. This is nothing new, the Democratic Party's relationship to finance capital. For a very long time, uh, the, the Wall Street has been to the Democratic Party what big energy, Texaco and Exxon, have been to the Republican uh, Party. And, and that, that uh, intimate relationship uh, has done nothing but intensify uh, in recent years, and especially uh, under Obama, who is the perfect servant of Wall Street. Save their butt. Remember, remember that George Bush's bailout failed on the Monday when it came up for a vote in October. Uh, it took uh, the shining knight uh, uh, candidate, Barack Obama, to fly in, to suspend his campaign and fly in and uh, talk to Democrats, and by Friday that vote was reversed. Barack Obama saved the banks. They know it, and he knows it, and uh, he it will be rewarded in his after-presidential life uh, <laughs> expensively for it. Uh, the third... The third uh, point, I think, is that we have to uh, organize um, against the banks that as, as the main enemy. And this is not part of some political game. Uh, game. Uh, I, I don't think it has 
something that's done for uh, strategic uh, reasons solely, but because the banks are the enemy. The enemy of the world is concentrated finance capital. Gentrification uh, is a threat uh, to our uh, ability uh, to organize in concentrated numbers. And the window on the black city is rapidly closing. We don't have much time left before uh, the uh, whole issue of what do you do with Chocolate City becomes moot because they won't be uh, anymore. So how has the uh, blackness leadership class uh, dealt with those two, we believe, greatest uh, challenges. Um, let's talk about mass incarceration uh, first. Uh, most folks don't know that when that 100 to 1 uh, crack cocaine bill was passed in 1986, half of the Congressional Black Caucus voted for it. And about half of those who voted for it are still there. But they don't fess up to that, uh, that they uh, were part of the whole hysteria that was whipped up by the Reagan administration about a crack epidemic that had, in the early 80s, uh, not yet uh, fully formed. Uh, as Michelle Alexander explained in the new Jim Crow, the whole effort to create the anti-crack hysteria was, as always it is, in order to make black folks the scapegoat for whatever was wrong uh, with the country. But we see that these black politicians in, in, the, in the caucus were willing, willing actors uh, in this whole charade uh, that, that resulted in a bill that put hundreds of thousands of black people behind bars for uh, decades. That's the kind of behavior that we get from them. Uh, I've concluded that these, this black misleadership class is more ashamed, uh, just as those New Orleans good colored folk are, were, more ashamed about mass incarceration than outraged. And that's why they are not to be trusted uh, in any movement uh, to abolish uh, this horrible penal system that we have. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. You know you should be and now, back to Janice. I don't often get shaken, but when we think about... Uh, I, I tell you, uh, some there has never been a president in the United States who has not had an approval or favorable record that Bernie Sanders enjoys today as plus nine. And there has never been a president elected with the disapproval rating as Hillary Clinton sees 
as minus 14. But that doesn't solve our problems. Uh, as Michelle Alexander commented on the Chris Hayes show, that's it, uh, uh, um, on this week, that we've got to decide whether or not the Democratic Party really serves our interests. And if it does not, what are our options? Here we go with the timeline. There have been many efforts, and I was a part of a very large one back in the 1990s, to uh, evaluate whether or not independent black, an independent black political party, not whether or not it was necessary, because it certainly is necessary, but whether or not it is viable. And viability really is defined by you and I. And I am hoping that you will stay with us um, in the last segment of the program tonight because we're going to be listening from Jamala Rogers, who is the leader of the Organization for Black Struggle in St. Louis and the Black Radical Congress because it is important. She is an Alston Bannerman Fellow. She's the author of The Best of the Way I See It, A Chronicle of Struggle, and she's a board member and columnist for Black Commentator. And um, she presented at a Black Power conference last month, and I wanted to share with you what she had to say. But let's talk about the viability of a third political party that is focused and targeted for the black community. We're going to go to our phones. We keep losing uh, someone on this phone. I don't know what's going on with um, Blog Talk Radio tonight. I don't often have problems here, but I'm told that we lost some of the audio for a while, and I'm not sure, and I wish someone in the chat room will tell me where we started to lose because I didn't lose any streaming at all. Um Sometimes there are scripts that go on in advertising, I think, that messes with the um, settings on computers. But one of the things that we have to focus on in looking at this, and and I'll tell you about my experience. Uh, I chaired the national uh, a national committee where we went from state to state in major inner city with major meeting with major inner city organizations uh campaign for new tomorrow and one of the th- two things that we introduced is the need for an independent third party led and um articulated by the black community and Ron Daniels and that year was a candidate for the President of the United States, Ron Walters, the famous Dr. Ron Walters, the famous uh, political scientist, Bob Law of um, Night Talk, 
uh, formerly of Night Talk at WBAI in New York City. Um, many of us were what we call graduates of a larger in the 1960s conference uh, on black power politics. Uh, You might have heard of the Gary, Indiana conference. Um, I was a very young undergraduate student at the time And there are very few people that you hear about, uh, Kwame Toure, uh, Amiri Baraka, uh, the father, the famous poet um, and father of the mayor of Newark. Um, And many of the people that you hear me talk about that and that I feature on this program We are all graduates of what we call Gary. And I, for the life of me, cannot understand why throughout all of these years we have been unable to create under the banner of black left politics a third party. Cynthia McKinney, one of the brightest politicians of my lifetime, um, had to run as president from the Green Party. Um, And one of the things that occurred to me is that, yes, black people want to be a part of something that has power and something that wins. But we have to ask the question, And we have to look at the timeline. What has been the effect and the outcome of switching from the Republican Party at the time of the candidacy of John F. Kennedy and the beginning of the Civil Rights era to the Democratic Party uh, where we got Jimmy Carter who, as president, was afraid of his own shadow, uh, where we got um, Bill Clinton, who was the captain of the neoliberal. And neoliberal, you know, let me just stop. When, when we were talking with Dr. Lester Spence, neoliberal is just another word for privatization. That's all it is. Um, I was reminded of that, and I had 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 some conversation with Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report, uh, who was with us last week and the week before, that that's all it is. Don't get confused by it. It's simply, it's very simply privatization of our government, of our government services. And what does that mean? It feeds the beast of capitalism. Now, I am a very proud black nationalist and a democratic socialist. And the 
the plantation known as the Democratic Party and the plantation known as the Republican Party and uh, does not inform the ideologies of either. I can't figure out why we can't figure out <coughs> excuse me that they do not serve us. I do wish I had a cough. Um, I, I, we're going to get this fixed by next week, ginger and honey and and some other stuff, whatever. But I am coming out of a very long bout of respiratory um, difficulties, uh, which is why I have had over the last couple of weeks people joining me, which is unusual on this program, um, uh, even when we don't have guests in our open mic to try to kind of cover for me. But our number is 347-838-9852, and maybe you can help me figure this out because it is not sitting well uh, at all. Uh, we're coming to the bottom of the hour, and uh, we're going to go to... Nope, 201 didn't show back up again. If you are calling in to talk with us, you have to hit one, the number one, um, in order to let me know that you want to talk. Otherwise, I will think you only want to listen. There is a question that came up uh, last week with... uh, Nina Turner and uh, with Yvette Cornell that I want to talk about briefly, but I'm going to go to 201, who's come back up. 201, you're on the air. Thank you for your call. Good evening. Good evening, Ms. Graham. Great Good show. evening. Um, I did you. lose audio, so it wasn't I'm, just the computer. Okay. And okay. It pretty much. It pretty much went out after you were discussing um, the situation with the charter school with the uh-huh. caller when he made the comment about the um, the salaries, and then you spoke, and then it went blank. Okay, so I don't yeah. have to be embarrassed by hanging up on him. You know, black conservatives, mm-hmm. people who lose their sense that this struggle is not an individual one. It is about the survival of our people. That that really grates me. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm a little bit intolerant of it. But you didn't call me to tell me about that. What, what's your sense well, on? Well, you know, I just had a conversation with someone today who's actually running for um, an office in my community. I just I rather not look. Yeah, you know, describe, okay. you know, tell the exact location because it's a very political and it's a very blue community and it's a very it's a community in which we we know all the players within our community and I don't think that they've been held accountable to the community at large they've just always mm-hmm. lied upon our votes and they take they have taken it for granted and you know the discussion came up to even regarding the schools because you know we could see that the private interests are in this you know tooth and nail they're dismantling our school system systemically, and they're doing it in such a way that the people who are from the community are not benefiting, whether it's the children or even the employees. 
So we're getting it from both ends. So it's like we're bleeding while these private groups come in and dismantle our schools. And it's being done in a way where, you know, I don't I don't think that you have to destroy a thing to make it better. So you will have mm-hmm. kids that are going to graduate while they're trying to dismantle us to go private that will graduate mm-hmm. and their their diplomas will not be worth the piece of paper is on. Most most of these kids are at some point in time are going to have to, you know, enter adulthood behind or enter college unprepared or enter training school unprepared. And this is all a result of the systemic problems that they're hurling at the public school system. I, I feel like this, if if the charter movement could provide a better option that's really better, that's proving to be um, successful. You did not have to destroy something that was already in place to make it happen. And mm-hmm. they, they are they are siphoning off money from the districts, and I have not seen any um, results that are so impressive that, you know, people should just go and get their kids in these schools in droves. Another thing, too, I, I read somewhere where there were like 1,300 applicants and only 80 kids were accepted. So what are you doing? So you just you destroy local schools to accept 80 kids, but well, what about the other number of kids that are not getting accepted? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You well, know, I, I think so. that's a very uh, legitimate and valid concern, and um, I, I think that we have to think about those things. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's all being done under our same brothers and sisters who who follow the same party. Uh-huh. You know? Let me let me and, explain to you how how, to, how this deal works. This deal mm-hmm. works is it's always in politics to follow the money. Mm-hmm. These this new in educational industrial. Uh, industry mm-hmm. is going around and they're convincing candidates to support their propaganda about what they mm-hmm. are doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the questions we have to ask is not only in, in terms of charter schools, but to the extent that we are being fooled bamboozled about mm-hmm. these online sc- schools which are charging exorbitant prices for mm-hmm. students uh, in tuition and whether or not we're going to see a prime mortgage kind of crash around that. Mm-hmm. But there's a fundamental question and I, th- I thank you for having this discussion with me there is a fundamental question and the fundamental question is whether or not we are willing to abandon the promise the privilege of public education to these charter schools and at the expense, taxpayers who are now essentially doing payday loans 
to the owners of the charter schools. I mean, some of these charter schools, there's a charter school chain that exists in Massachusetts that is spending millions of dollars to campaign for more charter schools. Millions of dollars that they already get um, to run these charter schools, and they bring in these teachers, made for teachers or whatever that organization had just slipped my mind, Teachers for America, Mm-hmm. Who are under? Who are undertrained? Undertrained. And all they want is test scores and discipline. And when I tell you that there are schools, the KIPP system, the KIPP system does not allow children to talk in the hallway. Talk. They can. They cannot talk in the classroom unless they're flipping their hand or doing some kind of waving kind of thing. And For multiple response, that's what they call And they are disciplined. Mm-hmm. They are disciplined for infractions of children being children. Mm. And they siphon out off all the parents who are actively participating in making sure that their educational institution works for their children. So you are left with a public school, a traditional public school, where you don't have advocates for children. Because you've got parents, uh, you've got a child who doesn't make the grade for the charter school, doesn't get in. And the charter school is screening out children Mm -hmm. who are not achieving well on these tests. Mm-hmm. So they're left in the traditional public schools, and mm-hmm. <coughs> and they're left with teachers. Um, I I really apologize for this cough. I don't know. I haven't been coughing all day long. Coughed all day long mm-hmm. yesterday, but not today. Um, so almost as if the segregationists won. Do you get my point? Of course I do. I'm actually an educator, and I work in a Mm -hmm. public school system. I'm a proud public school educator, and they're taking our public schools away from us. And the, the, the biggest lie that I'm hearing is, oh, public school teachers get paid so much money and X, Y, and Z. I've been working for over 18 years. And I don't think I'm getting $60,000 at the end of the fiscal year. And I spend at least 700 to to $1,000 a year after I've cut back from my own pocket. Because I remember I used to look at my receipts and say, wow, I got to pay. I got to pay to keep my job. I got to go out and buy this. I got to go out and buy that that I've never, ever seen come down to the classroom level. So the biggest slide that's going out there is that it's just going all to the teachers. Yes, we do have um, uh, collective bargain, bargaining rights, which we should, because we're left we're left vulnerable to many many um, verbal assaults, vulnerable to uh, the potential for criminal charges. You name it. We we walk out a very thin line every day when we go to work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, and 
you have these corporations who are also paying to break the backs of teacher unions. Right, exactly. And the thing is, uh, the, the charter schools, I, I mean, this whole new privatization of education, one of the main things that they've done is to successfully, um, uh, I guess, circumvent the power of our unions or mm-hmm. either mm-hmm. Uh, either they have paid legislators more money than our union. But, but this is this is how they do it. Mm-hmm. When the contracts are written for the charter schools, mm-hmm. the contracts contain different rules for charter schools mm-hmm. than the other schools. Okay. okay. And that is exactly how they maintain their lock hole on doing things differently. It's 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 just an unbelievable situation that I think that we need to keep an eye on. We need to make sure that we, I mean, you know, the thing is, traditional schools don't send home a brochure that's nice and shiny with pictures of of smiling children and, and talk about how all of the kids went to college. We have to we have to look at that with the third eye, right? Because they cherry pick kids. That's right. That's right. Those kids would have gone to college whether they went to the charter school or not. Right. They cherry pick kids. And another thing too, they're not dealing with the kids who they're not dealing with kids who may have special needs, as we would in the public schools. They're not dealing with you know the kids that may have you know. Uh, trauma taking place in their lives. Mm-hmm. They're not dealing. They don't put up with it. They will take. They will get paid for them for the year, but let anything happened during the year, they're sending them out. But there's also another point, and the other point is that we we are always asking the traditional public schools to make improvements, but the mm-hmm. answer is always that they don't have enough resources to do that because the resources are being siphoned off. Mm-hmm. Um, the same people who are who are lauding charter schools did nothing, I mean, in, in, in terms of elected officials and advocates mm-hmm. in the community, did nothing to ensure the quality mm-hmm. of the traditional schools. Mhm. So I agree. you know, even even in in some in some cities in the in in some suburbs, you had a decrease in the in student population because people were having less children, because the the people were retire uh, aging in place, so they had all these buildings that were schools with no students. So they had to figure out a way in which to make those buildings pay pay a profit to the to the city or to the county or to the state. It, it this thing is just dredged through the for profit process 
which everything else is being dragged through, including your post office, including uh, other kinds of services uh, to your to to your uh, to, to to citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, we just got a um, I just got an email from what's his name? I am the universe, and um, he said some pretty nasty things about me, um, and he has been banned. Um, he's been working on it for for a couple of years. He has been banned off the. He's p- pissed off because I I threw him out of the chat room. Um, so we've got to really begin to think through what are these people doing, um, and why are they doing it, and in terms of the effect. How are all children being affected by this? I mean, most charter schools, students have to apply. If it's public school, why do you have to apply? Exactly. I, yeah. Well, I thank you for your call. We're going to... Um, yeah, thank you for taking it. Uh, thank you for being with us. We're going to... I have one other question. Besides the okay. uh, Michelle Ale- Michelle Alexander clip with uh, the new Jim Crow, there was another person. Who was that? Second Glenn Ford. Speaker? He is the editor of the Black Agenda Report. Okay. All right. Thank and you. Thank you, and you have a good weekend. Is that um, the only other person? Glenn yeah. Ford? Glenn okay. Ford. Okay. I appreciate it. But I have a treat for you. Thank you. Okay. I have a treat for all of you um, this evening, and part of it has to do with I've been wanting to share the work of Jamala Rogers for a while, and we're going to do that right now. And by the time this is up, uh, it'll be time for us to leave and uh we are working on bringing in the founder of <coughs> of um the dream defenders to be with us uh next saturday and jamala rogers thank you for being with us and i do apologize once again for all this coughing i should have known I should have known. I should have known. We thank uh, I, uh, India Declare for looking out for us tonight in our chat room, and don't forget to join her on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Oh, another thing I wanted to share with you. I really loved Barack Obama on Thursday. Many of you know of my three-year journey with Kimba Smith. Uh, to get her 24.5 years unjust uh, sentence pardoned, which happened uh, more than eight years ago. But on Thursday, President Barack Obama commuted her sentence. And I got a very, very lovely, if you go to my Facebook page, uh, thank you from her father, which really warmed my heart. Thank you. Have a good weekend.
Radical greetings from Ferguson, Missouri. I want to thank the organizers of the conference, especially Brother Tony there, and I've heard so much about him, and it makes me think, is the academy the only place where we're radicalizing our young people? And if it is, that's a sad commentary, because um, everybody doesn't get to go to college, y'all. So I'm glad that Robin went before me. We sort of had a powwow even be online about how we wanted to do this. I really wanted to focus on our movement, because if we're going to fight anything, whether it's white supremacy, neoliberalism, capitalism, our movement's got to be something different. Our movement has got to be something stronger. And I can tell you, after Ferguson, we saw a lot. We experienced a lot. We felt a lot. And all of it wasn't good, y'all. So in some ways, we are moving, but we are still recuperating from some of the unprincipledness that dropped in on us, mm -hmm. that is still usurping the energies of brothers and sisters who were there before August 9th, and they're going to be there after August 9th. And so those voices of young people have to be lifted up. And uh, I'm actually prepared and more committed to doing that than I ever have been. The Ferguson effect often is referred to as policing not being able to do their jobs, that somehow they're now scared to police because they're under such public scrutiny. Well, we knew there was a lie in Ferguson because less than two weeks after Mike Brown was shot, Jimmy Powell was shot. Mm -hmm. And that was with the whole world, cameras and all, international media there. So we know that that's a crock. What I'm calling the Ferguson effect is the unapologetic way that not just young people, but black people are moving and grooving in all arenas. So I call the Ferguson effect the, the fact that black Rams players come out with hands up. That ain't never been done before. I'm calling the Ferguson effect the fact that Black Lives Matter activists snatch microphones out of the presidential candidate's hands. That's what I'm calling the Ferguson effect. I'm calling the Ferguson effect the fact that black folks in Chicago refused to stand down until they got the resignation of the police chief, corrupt as he was. That's the Ferguson effect for real, y'all. We are doing things and feeling things that we've never felt before. And that's good. That's good. And we got to keep that going. And uh, I know that sometimes this gets said in a historical way, that this is the only time we got to get it together. It's not. We've been here before. But this is certainly some exciting times that we're in. All kind of possibilities are opening up. And uh, I really am proud to be a part of the movement right now. I was listening to Sister Africa, Pam Africa, and I really could feel something from her 
and probably it's an age thing. Uh, this year is going to be like 50 years I've been in this movement. And I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that for accolades, because it ain't, you know, my life ain't been no crystal stair, y'all. But what I am saying is that when you've been doing this for 50 years, you've seen a lot. You've seen our people suffer. You've seen death in the streets, literally people dying in the streets. You've been a part of the crack cocaine epidemic, which I call chemical warfare on our people. You witnessed, and not only you witnessed that, and this is the thing that I think we need to be mindful of, that you were a part of trying to steer some of that stuff. You were a part of trying to save some lives. You were not a spectator in what was going on. And I think right now some of us are spectators. I'm just going to bring it to you straight, y'all, because y'all didn't ask me to come all this way to bullshit you, right? So when I talk about the fact that we saw things in Ferguson, we felt things in Ferguson, some of that was learning stuff, you know, that, you know, some young people had never experienced before. They didn't think it was going to happen like that. They didn't think it was going to take that long to get the attention of the white supremacist government there. But there was so much that we did learn. There are so many young people who've been truly radicalized, and they are now coming in conflict with young people who have a different agenda. I'm just going to say it like that. So one of the things I've been challenging young people to do and everybody to do is to think about we are whole, wanting to hold the folks in power accountable but we don't hold ourselves accountable. Some of our organizations are mirroring some of these neoliberal organizations. And we don't see anything wrong with that. The only difference is we got a, a fancy radical sounding name on the, on the door. But the same hierarchical privilege staffing that goes on in corporate America goes down in those organizations. These are the organizations that are fighting for justice, y'all. How are we going to do that and win? How is the Black Lives Matter going to move forward when there's young women of color, black, trans, queer women, and when you start to acknowledge that, you hear grumblings from brothers that are supposed to be radical. Just because we have the rhetoric, the external trappings, a nice t-shirt, a mudcloth hat, doesn't mean, doesn't mean that the same hegemonic toxins don't affect us. They do. And we, for some reason, don't feel like it, they do. So we've been struggling with some brothers around their misogyny for a long time. Why? We've been struggling with some of our anti-racist white allies for a long time. Why? A little call and response there like that. Yeah, yeah. 
that's the why that I think we got to really delve into. Because if we don't do that, y'all, this is the vanguard. And I say this with no amount of blowing smoke up people's butts, but some of the smartest people I know are in the movement. They're in the movement. Thank goodness. So why can't we figure this stuff out, y'all? It's because we don't take this stuff seriously. We don't take the fact that these folks got a plan, and they've been working their plan for a very long time. And I can say that because when I say 50 years, one of the things I remember is back in 1972, I did a uh, congressional hearing for our first black congressman. And it was around disinvestment. It was around of our communities. We had come across a, a, something called the Team 4 plan that was supposed to be hidden where there was concentrated disinvestment of parts of our communities, starting with major institutions like schools and, and hospitals. Forty years later, his son, who's a congressperson, asked me to testify at a hearing on the same damn thing. So they're moving ahead with a plan, y'all, but I, we seem to be in some kind of virtual loop here. And we got to get ourselves out of it. And we got to get out, of, out quick because when we saw Ferguson, we saw what they had in store for us. We, didn't, we hadn't seen it before. We knew they had, like, guns. We didn't know they were coming out with MRAPs and uh, drones and all of that. So now we know they ain't playing with us. So here are some of the questions that I really want to put forward for us to think about. Because I think, you know, we're we doing this in love. Although I do tell some people, if you don't learn quick, we're going to move to the next level. But we got to do it in love, y'all. And, and sometimes we need to stay off Twitter when we're having our, our debates. Okay. I tell young people, you can't have a principal debate in 144 characters. You can't. 140. Okay, 140. I stand corrected. And I stand corrected by somebody whose organization did something different. And he didn't know I was going to say this, but I've already been talking about it. They did a social media blackout. Because what they were finding out was that they were spending more time with checking out who's liking their tweets and retweeting than fighting against patriarchy and capitalism. They were seeking virtual validation when our people are suffering. I really commend y'all for that. I'm serious. When I saw that, I'm like, a lot of times we do this broad brush stroke with the millenniums. I'm like, well, hold up. Well, here's an example. Here's something that's positive and good, a step back to say, what are we doing? What is our purpose here? Is this what it's all about? Because I don't care. If you got five million followers and they ain't doing jack, I'd rather have 100 people follow me that are clear on their purpose and direction. So let's not get it twisted with Twitter, because they racist too, y'all. Check out how many black people work for them. So here's a question that we're going to think about while we're having this discussion. Where are the working class leaders that we are developing as a movement? 
there are at least five areas that our people are really suffering in. And these are called quality of life areas where if you don't have them, your quality of life is going to be diminished. So when I look at the fact that the public education has been under attack for a while, but what's really left in public schools, I ain't talking about like charter and magnet and all of that, I'm talking about the real public schools are the kids that are coming from intergenerational chronic poverty who've been abused sexually, physically, mentally, and physically. These are the kids that are crowded into a classroom to learn. I'm going to tell y'all that I don't see a black agenda there. I don't see black radicals there. I think the sister just talked about it, uh, Reverend Pam, that she needs to see some of y'all. I don't see folks out there doing that. In the struggle for public health, most cities that we're in, there are no more public hospitals. Our people are dying, literally. There's no radical agenda for that. In terms of housing, of course, you can forget public housing. And you think about someplace like uh, New York City where on any given day 60,000 people are homeless. That's, that's a city, y'all. Y'all know how many people that is? We don't have a radical agenda for that, y'all. And no radicals up in there. When I say no, don't somebody say, oh, I know somebody that's doing housing work. I'm talking about in mass, we have no agenda in that area. When I think about the state repression, what organizations do we have that are fighting police terror? And even though we victimize every day and we being killed every 28 hours, Malcolm X, grassroots, people told us that, we still don't have an agenda, y'all. Even around mass incarceration, don't y'all say, Sister, Sister uh, Angela David, okay, that's one person. Where is our radical black agenda around mass incarceration? So we, we got some work, y'all. There's no radical agenda in those areas that we can be working in, that we can provide a framework for folks who are coming in. And we're seeing lots of folks come in new. They're saying, what, what should I do? Where should I go? But there's no theoretical framework for them, no radical guidance. The other question. Where is the evidence of our organizing for political and economic power? And when I say that, I'm not just talking about the electoral arena. I'm talking about how are we organizing our people, working class people, for real power? It's not happening, y'all, not the way it should. Where is the popular or political education of the masses of people so that they aren't calling for more police? more surveillance cameras, or in some cases... You've got to have an enemy for everything. The way that uh, Germany in the 30s rebuilt their infrastructure, rebuilt their, their industries, and rebuilt their pride, their nationalism, was by saying that these people, this group of people, is the cause of all of our woe, and if we hate them, we'll be better off. I think at this stage of movement building, uh, my own view is that 
the first order of business is how can we get our communities to care about each other, right? That the first order of business is consciousness raising and developing a sense of care, compassion, and concern within the communities most affected by it um, before we really even begin to address kind of those mainstream white swing voters that we're ultimately going to have to persuade through our advocacy work. And I say this in part because one of the things that, you know, I've been really struck by in my own work on these issues is that, you know, with Jim Crow, African Americans were stigmatized, um, but they had their own businesses, you know, they had their own churches, theaters, workplaces. There was a sense of solidarity within the community. There was a, a degree of racial solidarity in community. Well, mass incarceration has turned the black community against itself, has turned communities of color against itself. And I think we first need to begin to build unity and a common understanding of the nature of this system and kind of an agreement about what must be done about it. You know, obviously there's not going to be perfect agreement or perfect consensus, but I think the first order of business is to raise consciousness in our own community that no, you know, the fact that all these kids are going to jail is not because they're just all hoodlums or bad kids, right? It's because it's a setup. Thank you for joining us here on Our Common Ground. Join us next Saturday as we talk about the solutions, the ideas, the notions of liberation. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Don't forget to join us on our Facebook page and Twitter, Janice at OCG. Support independent black media. Thanks to our callers and to our listeners, and thank you for your support.